Our scripture lesson today comes at the very end of the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 28. Let's share in the Easter story together. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. The grave is empty. He is risen. What will you do about it? What will you do? What will your response be? Yes, the grave is empty. He is risen. And so when I say he is risen, you say he is risen indeed. He is risen. risen Great job. Way to go. With all our brothers and sisters all around the world and across all of time, we say these things. We celebrate for more than 2,000 years. That this morning is a part, sorry, this afternoon, is a part of a much bigger story than just today. We're part of something much bigger than just today. Now, when times are tough in the Christian tradition, we also have another phrase that goes like this. Well, it may look like Good Friday. It may feel like Good Friday. It may be Good Friday in your life, but Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. Now, that phrase means something like, hold on, hold on, because help is on the way. These phrases are in reference to what John Ortberg calls a three-day story. Now, you all know uh, a three-day story. Three-day stories are kind of like three days uh, uh, or three-person jokes. You know, you got the first guy, then you got the second guy, and then there's the punchline or the the climax of the story. These three-day stories, that's how it works. The first day is the day of trouble, the day of pain. And the third day is the day of deliverance, resurrection day. But the trouble with three-day stories, of course, is you don't know it's a three-day story until the third day, do you? 
You never know how long that middle section is going to last. And if you'll take out your sermon notes, we'll get started uh, with three days that changed the world. The grave is empty. Say it with me. He is risen. This is the good news of Easter. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, we ended the story late Thursday night in the garden where Jesus had cried out, Lord God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but yours. That's where we want to grow to, to be that sort of witness in the world. But from late Thursday night to Friday dawn, Jesus was betrayed by his close friend, Judas, denied by his chosen leader for the church, Peter, and deserted by all the disciples. It was a long Thursday night till Friday dawn. We're going to follow the Easter story from the Gospel of Matthew this morning. In Matthew 26, it says, but all of this had to take place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Read that with me. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Not one of his friends stood by his side. Not one of them was there that night. They all fled. And it's in this darkness of Thursday night late into Friday morning before dawn. It's in the dark that Jesus was taken, not by the Romans, but by religious leaders. It was religious people that took him and tortured him overnight. They would spit on him and beat him and slap him and mock him and and take him outside the city walls, out to Caiaphas' house, outside the city, and throw him in a pit and keep him there until dawn. And then in the morning, they gave Jesus to Pilate, to Rome. For them to kill him. You see, they they had made a plan. They had set a trap. They set it up. But they weren't going to sully themselves. They weren't going to be to blame. So they are going to have Rome do it. They're occupying force. And so it would work for them in multiple ways. They thought they were so smart. So the gospel continues in Matthew. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him and they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor the highest ruler of the Roman authority in that, in that area. Yeah, the first day, Friday, that's the day of pain. It's the day of trouble. That's day one of a three-day story. The gospel continues that after flogging Jesus, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So often we'll go from Palm Sunday to Easter and we'll skip all the middle section. Some of the devout would actually back up and attend a Good Friday service or think about Good Friday, but normally that starts at the cross. But a lot had happened to Jesus well before the crucifixion. In Rome, they had a practice known as the scourge, and they would take a whip, and there were metal balls, steel balls that were heavy, heavy enough to bloody you, to break the blood vessels underneath your skin, and to bruise you badly. And then they had figured out that right behind that, if you took a fishbone and you cut it into a hook, that once the, the ball would hit you and bloody you, then the hook would tear out your flesh, and you would bleed to death. They knew this so well that if they would hit you with this 40 times, you would die. They'd never known someone to live past 40 lashes. And they had done this so many times to so many thousands of people that they'd actually taken it down to a deadly, torturous art where they would say 40 lashes minus one so that they could hold a person on the very edge of death before they bled out. And it's after this. They stripped Jesus, they put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head, and they began to mock Jesus. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! 
They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And after mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Then, at that moment, to carry his cross, beaten and bloodied, through the streets of Jerusalem, up to a hill where all the world could see what could happen to you if you crossed Rome. But here's where we have to get this right this morning, friends. Jesus is not a victim. We worship not a martyr, but a savior, the very savior of the world. Friends, it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. No, it was love. It was love. It was love that held him there. Not nails. Jesus chose the cross for you, for me, for the world, for all who would give themselves to him. He chose it. Now, we have to go over to the Gospel of John to see the very words of Jesus about this, but they're right there in black and white. It's super clear. Jesus says this, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. We can often forget that if Jesus wanted to, he could have called down tens of thousands of warring angels to just wipe everybody out. No, he chose the cross. He lays his down, lays down his life. He picks it back up again. He says, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Make no mistake, this is Jesus' choice for you and for me in obedience to God the Father. And the crucifixion happens, and by a little after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus has died. The hope of the world lost. We come to Saturday. Saturday is the day that nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense on Saturday. You've had the pain. You've had the betrayal. You've had the denial. People have left you. You are in your misery and in your pain. And you don't know how you're going to go forward. And you know you can't go back. You get stuck in these moments. If you live long enough, you'll experience Saturday. Everybody does. Matthew 27 says it like this. The next day, the day after Friday... After the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised. Now, the last deception would be worse than the first. So Pilate says to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. I want you to understand what's going on here. Many of these people said that they had to kill Jesus because he was pretending to be the Messiah. And now they're so worried that he actually is the Messiah, they need to keep him in there. And make sure that the disciples can't get to him. I mean, you understand this. It wasn't that they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It was that they were afraid he was. And their power would be stripped from them. They'd no longer be in control. People would begin to worship Jesus because they had already started to do that. So they sealed the tomb. And they sealed the tomb in such a way that um, the the big stone would be up on an incline and would be rolled down. and, And only a number of very, very strong men could ever move it. And that's why in the other gospels, the women as they walk, they say, well, who's going to roll the stone away for us? Because certainly they couldn't do it. It would take the very strongest men around to do it and many of them. Yep. All of us know Saturday. It's the day of waiting. It's a day of waiting. And if you live in Oklahoma, you, you've lived through seasons of this. If you've been here very long. I remember 24 years ago, I was in seminary at the time. I was in my middle year. And I remember calling my family and, and checking. My grandmother lived uh, not too far from here, just up by Penn Square Mall. And her entire house shook. And 168 lives were lost. And I called my professors and said, I need, I need to get home. 
just felt called to come up and be there. And they, they made First Christian Church at 36th Street a, a makeshift morgue. And Chantel and I went up and began to work with families to let them know whether their children, their babies, their toddlers, um, or their husbands or their wives were dead or alive. And to do that work. And it was a terrible, terrible, long Saturday of confusion and death. When our youngest son Noah was born, two days before he was born was Columbine made no sense. At that time in our country, those sorts of things uh, weren't as familiar. We had never seen anything like that. And I had this tradition in our family where um, when our firstborn was born, John Mark, uh, it was the Olympics, and I thought it was so cool to get the papers and to kind of show them, look what was going on when you were born. And then I looked at the, the front headlines of all the papers of this mass shooting, and I thought, no, I'm not keeping that. We won't, we won't have that be associated with this birthday every year. Or maybe it's something um, more religious in nature. We think it's going to last forever. Maybe it's lasted nearly a thousand years. And yet, somehow, through the oddity of a remodel and a short circuit, that which we thought would last forever goes up in flames. These, even these holy spaces, these things that we think could never change or that everybody or we're going to take the grandkids to see. No, even that begins to go away in dust and ashes and fire. Yet somehow, someway, the cross of Christ remains in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the hurt. And some people would say that the cross of Christ in those times even would begin to glow. And, and, and people would consider God's miraculous presence even in the darkest, hardest of times in the middle of Paris. But it is actually interesting that with these beautiful centerpieces of gold crosses, it can be easy to forget that the cross was the very worst thing that could happen to you in Jesus' day. The Romans would actually line the roads with people in various stages of death so that you would know that that could happen to you if you dared to cross Rome. And yet today, roughly 2,000 years later, Jesus' death on the cross is the most important, most remembered, most celebrated event in history. So no, it wasn't like a golden glowing cross and not even a lit up beautiful cross that we keep in the middle of our sanctuary. It was a cross that had Jesus' blood on it. And when they pierced aside, blood and water flowed from his body and he breathed his last and the tomb is sealed. The earth shakes, the curtain is torn in two. And on that day, evil has won. As far as anybody could tell, love was gone. John Ortberg writes, Saturday is the only day in the last 2,000 years when literally not one person in the whole world believed Jesus was alive. Saturday is the day when nothing makes sense to us. It's between bad news and good news. Every one of us knows that Saturday. It's the day your dreams die. Saturday is the, the day that, that you wait. You've gotten the, the cancer diagnosis, but you don't know what the protocol is going to be. It's the day that you've lost your job and you don't have another one lined up. It's the day where nothing makes sense. It's a day of waiting, though you don't know why and you don't know how long. But it's in those dark moments that we also remember that God does some of God's best work in the middle of darkness. In the middle of the ashes, he brings new life. I love the way Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. She says, new life starts in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. And so if you're here today and you're in a dark period, 
Get ready for a miracle. That's where God does his best work. He places that seed in you, that seed of hope, and he allows it to grow in and up and through the darkness. Because Sunday's coming. Saturdays are terrible, but Sunday's still coming. And Sunday is the day of deliverance. It's the day of salvation. And it's so easy now in the modern church to really separate those things. But I would remind you that salvation, this Greek word sozo, is the same word as healing. A a way out, when things are made right, this deliverance. And certainly in, in the Old Testament, when God saved his people through the sea, it was deliverance. They were saved. It wasn't just some nice thought. It was actual, I was about to die and now I'm alive. Over the last seven weeks, we've been following the work of Father Honeycutt in a sermon series called Life and Death, Matter of Life and Death. That's what we're talking about this morning at Easter. And he said he had a vision, he had a dream. And he describes heaven and salvation like this. And I want you to pay attention because it may not be exactly like you think of it. He says, off in the distance, I saw a blinding white light such as I had never seen before. And as I approached the light, I became increasingly aware of all the sinful actions of my life. But it was more than that. I also became extremely aware of my attitudes, my past thoughts, my prejudices. So much so that I wanted to just hop right out of my body. I wanted to jump into that light and leave the dirty self behind. But I couldn't. I could not. Instead, I entered the brilliant unknown light just as I was. It was there that I was greeted by someone that I perceived to be an angel. But unlike the angels that I'd always imagined, you know, with wings and the baby face, the harp, the cloud, he was extremely beautiful. Welcome, said the angel. And I couldn't tear my eyes away from his beautiful light. Again, he said, welcome. And I muttered, "Uh, where am I? And he smiled and said, surely you received and accepted our invitation or you would not be here. You must know where you are. No, please tell me. He said, this is the kingdom of God. All is beauty, all is holy, all is love. Everything, including you, my dirty little man. You're here because God wills it to be so. And I cried out, but I'm not worthy. And he said, you're right, you're not. And for the first time since my arrival, I was able to peel my eyes from his beautiful face and scan this holy land. I cannot describe for you how beautiful the light. Then suddenly, my eyes glimpsed someone I knew, a sinner from earth, a sinner. And I said to the angel, surely you must be mistaken. I'm not in heaven for look there. That man's a sinner. I knew him on earth. I don't think he ever went to church a day in his life. What's he doing here? My guide said he was invited. He came. And for a brief, horrifying moment, I saw my own reflection in his beautiful face. And as we traveled along, I saw others that I knew, both sinners and saints. I was very confused. And yet, at the same time, quite overwhelmed. And I asked um, this guide many questions. But his answers were all the same. They, They all said something like, well, they were invited. Or they accepted our invitation. Or because God wills it to be so. And then suddenly... I stopped dead in my tracks. There stood Jack Tyndall. Ugh. I hated him. Oh, how I hated him. I turned to the light-filled being and I said, I can't believe Jack's here. I can't stand him. But the angel said, well, remember once or twice, you prayed for him. And I, well, that's right. It almost killed me, but I did it. I remembered to pray for my enemies. And I said, well, is that why he's here? 
And he said to me, no, that's how you got in. Sure, I'd prayed for my enemies, but I surely hadn't prayed that I'd spend eternity with them. Now that we could think about for a while. Then almost like a stage parade, one by one, enemies and scoundrels alike, they all passed before me. And I started yelling at my angelic guide and I started to cry. I saw nothing before me but people I hated. Where were the folks that I loved? Where was my wife? My mother, my father, my grandmother, where were all my friends who had passed on? And almost on the brink of hysteria, I turned to the glowing creature and I pleaded, but where are my loved ones? And he asked me, why should they be here? I said, for me, because I love them. They are my family. No, maybe they weren't all perfect, but they were good folks. Please, oh, please tell me where are my loved ones? And he too shed a tear. And the light subsided a bit, and he showed me his hands and his feet. And I recognized Jesus. And in that same moment, I became white as snow, no longer feeling dirty or shamed in any way. He said to me, I too know love, and it is my love that's brought you here, and all these other people here, to this kingdom. Many whom you love are here also, yes, but you should know that they are no more loved than those whom you hate. For they are all my family, my family, and I am the judge. I am the judge. My father has given me the reign of his entire kingdom. And as you know, I opened my heart for the love of the world. That those who love me, those who love me, those who love me will inherit eternal life. And then he vanished. And all those who were before me changed. No, I think really I changed. I saw clearly for the first time that these were not my enemies. These were my family. All things became clear that God so loved the world. The world. It was God's will. God's invitation. God's choice. And I became overwhelmed with joy. And there was shouting and dancing and music and a feast before me. Surrounding the throne of light. But someone was missing in the middle of this great party. Where was Jesus? who had brought me to the banquet, who had opened my eyes. Where was the Christ who had taught me so much? And I asked around, and and they pointed over to the gate where I'd come in. There was Jesus waiting by the gate. And I said, well, what's wrong? Why does he look so sad? Why does Jesus stand there so sad? And I couldn't be sure, but I, I think they said to me, he's waiting for Judas, his friend. Now, I'll admit, I was groggy, and I was trying to hold on to the dream or the vision or whatever it was, but it sounded like he said, Judas. Could that be right? But, but as I was waking up and I slammed my hand down on the alarm clock, I heard clearly, no, he's waiting on you. Friends, he's waiting for you. His invitation. That's what Easter's about. That's what salvation is about. It's an invitation for you to be with Jesus. Now, Easter can be shocking, friends, where we experience both joy and fear. It's always, when we're in the presence of God, it's always much more than we bargain for. Much bigger than we could think or imagine, Ephesians says. And Matthew 28 finishes up the Easter story like this. It says, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the dawning, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they go to see the tomb. And suddenly there's this great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descends from heaven, came and rolled back the stone. He sits on it. His appearance light as lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards, they shake and they become like dead men. But the angels, the angels and all of that say to the women, do not be afraid. Well, that's kind of a big order given the earthquakes and the shaking and all the rest, isn't it? Don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he has been raised as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples he has been raised from the dead and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. Friends, Galilee is 80 miles away by foot. It's like saying, oh, and go see him in Tulsa. Right? Get walking. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly. Say this with me. With fear and great joy. Both. That's Easter. And they begin to run to tell his disciples. And it's in that moment that Jesus greets them. Suddenly Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came to him and they took hold of his feet. They laid down before him and they worshiped him. So if you're a lady in the room, I want you to know this. The women are both the first witnesses and the first messengers. This is crazy in first century Palestine. Women had no standing. And this is who God chooses To be both the first witnesses of the resurrection and the messengers of the most important message the world has ever known. Jesus' Easter message to them and to us is simply this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Whatever you're afraid of, you don't have to be afraid because Jesus is with you. He's alive and well. And then he says, secondly, go and tell. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, 80 miles away, and there they'll see me just as I said. Now, it's easy to read over this, but I mean, why don't you catch this? Who, who are they supposed to go tell? His brothers? Well, who might that be exactly? Because you'll notice there's nothing in the story between the time that they all deserted him. All of them. These are the people he calls brothers. Now, for those of you who have brothers, you get this. That's how it is with family, Right? It's not perfect, but we love them anyway. It's not about their character. It's about Jesus' character. It's about his love. It's about his choice of who he loves. He calls them brothers. That probably tells you everything you need to know about Jesus. That those in his darkest, most powerful time of need, they would walk away, they would deny, they would betray, they would leave him cold, and he calls them brother. He calls you sister. He calls you brother. He calls you friend. So Jesus' Easter message to them and to us is one, say with me, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid anymore, friends. And then, now that you're not afraid, go and tell, right? That's the Easter message. That's what we're to do. So on Easter Sunday, Jesus' followers' lives, though, got a lot more dangerous. They didn't get easy. They got harder. What to do? Well, we wanted to do the same thing the disciples did. Just the next thing we know that Jesus told us. That's what we can do. Nothing more, and hopefully nothing less. The scripture says, now that the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, they had made it. They actually went up to the mountain, which Jesus had directed them. And he greets them there. You see, Easter is not a lovely metaphor, but a powerful reality. Jesus is alive. He says to go, they go. He meets them there. Reality. In other gospels, he eats fish. He's not a ghost. But today, so many think of Easter as a comforting story that says something like, well, spring is coming. Flowers are blooming. Life's eternal. Everything's going to be just fine. That's nowhere in the Bible. See, in the first Easter that's recorded, they experience both joy and fear and a healthy dose of it. 
Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus or any of the angels ever say anything like, now you don't have to worry about dying anymore. They all died. And you're going to die too. So will I. Last time I checked in Edmund, death rate 100%. Never changes. Right? And, And think about it. If Jesus was a problem for the religious authorities when he was alive and then dead, how much more was he a problem to the Romans and the religious leaders now that he was gone and very much alive? How much more furious at the empty tomb? How much more afraid? How much more desperate? How much more dangerous to anyone who would dare stay connected to claim the name of Jesus? You see, for the women to announce that the cross had failed, that the religious guards had failed, that Pilate had failed, that the occupying force of Rome itself had failed, that sort of talk could get you killed. Yet it's called good news. No, no, Easter's not a metaphor. Easter is an invitation. It's an invitation for you to have Jesus come into your life and radically overhaul all of it and empower you to new life and adventure beyond your imagination. And Paul knows this is a temptation. In the early days when it would cost you your life to follow Jesus if Rome found out, Paul writes to the early church in Corinth, some of the earliest Christian writings we have. He says, don't don't fall for that. He says, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. No, no. The truth is that Christ has been raised up. The first and a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries, us included, friends. Back into Matthew to conclude the story. It says, when the disciples see him there in Galilee, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, how much authority? All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Now, in Bible study here, we know this. When you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, what's the therefore, therefore? That's what you do, because it's there for a reason. You have to look at what goes before to explain what comes after. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, you can now go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey what? All of it, friends. Not just some of it. All of it that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as our action steps for our life as we move forward is this. First of all, we want to know Jesus And to know the reality that he has all universal authority. It belongs to him. Not not just mental assent, but an interactive biblical knowing. Where we're walking with Jesus. We're talking with Jesus. And we know that he has everything under his authority. So we don't have to be afraid anymore. And then because that's true, we can go and make disciples for the very transformation of the world. Starting with us, with our hearts. That we would love like Jesus loves. And we don't do it in our own strength and we don't do it alone. No, we're not alone. Jesus is with us. Because Easter is proof. Easter is proof of the resurrection that God is with us. And the early Christians celebrated this fact as we celebrate it today some 2,000 years later. Paul writes this to the early church. He says, For I handed on to you a first importance. It's not periphery, friends. This is the center of our faith. The first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures as prophesied. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. Cephas is a Greek transliteration. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than, say it with me, 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Friends, there were lots of would-be messiahs. But none of them are being worshipped today. Jesus alone. The savior of the world. 
So the early church would cry out on Easter and other days. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Will you read that with me? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This Easter weekend, friends, whatever day or season you find yourself in, whatever you are going through, I pray that the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise you to new life in this world, in this darkness, in the day that you're in, and the next. Because with all the company of heaven and all the Christians that have gone before us, we say once more, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the reality of the resurrection. That you alone are God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let everyone say hallelujah. We thank you that you are raised. And where we falter and we don't know what that next step is, we thank you that you've taught us even how to pray by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.